Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh my dear brothers, sisters, friends and the foes out there and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers podcast with your host Didi Hussain. Today's guest is someone who requires no introduction but I'm going to give a little one anyway. And the reason why today's guest is um, very special is because, believe it or not, they have a fair amount of similarities with myself. They're an avid Liverpool fan, they're an avid Drillish Ertrul fan, um, a media personality, albeit in a different uh, realm of media. But most importantly for me, a fellow Budfordian. And not just any fellow Budfordian, someone who was raised in the same hood as me, MK40. And that's none other than BBC Asian Network's <laughs> DJ Noreen Khan. Assalamu alaikum. Um, alaikum salam. Thank you so much for um, having me on. Was that introduction okay? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. That was great. It was really good. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, you're very welcome. It's nice, actually, to record a podcast and do something like this in my own hometown of Bedford. It is, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know about you, but Bedford holds a very special place in my heart. Yeah. Because, I'll tell you what that is, Noreen, because if I was to say to you, who is the town's most famous five people? Could you name them? Um, Politicians and mayors not included. Yeah, I mean, I... There's not really, are they? No, not Paula really. Radcliffe, I mean, Matt Skeleton, the boxer. That, that's true. Gosh, remember him? Yeah. Yeah. But that's about it, isn't it? I know, I know. I think Carol Vorderman was born in Bedford. Okay, well, that's it. And then one of the Barkers, you know, like Ronnie yes. Barker, yeah. I think he was born in Bedford, but then they didn't obviously stay. Exactly. Um, you know, they moved on years ago. And I guess the only other famous thing about Bedford is the Butterfly Bridge where Salman Khan made a video, <laughs> right? The, Shot of a Bollywood yeah, movie. The Cardington Hangers, right? <laughs> and that's about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Let me kick off the uh, mo- the mood for today's podcast. I'm going to ask you uh, to choose one of the two things. Okay. Right? Um, I was told that you're a vegetarian. I am. How's that going? I've been vegetarian since for many years now. I, I turned vegetarian when I was 13. Really? Yeah. Are you never tempted by lamb or chicken? Nope. I was pescatarian up until about seven years ago. Yeah. So I was occasionally having fish, given that up too. So it's just all veg in there? All yeah? vegetables. Under? Yeah, I'm not vegan. I'm okay. not vegan. So I do occasionally have eggs and dairy products. Yeah. Uh, but this is something that a lot of, I think, especially the my you know fellow Pakistanis yeah. and... Uh, you know, Muslim brothers and sisters can't get their head around. They're like, you don't eat meat. <laughs> How can you survive without meat? I'm like, I've been surviving for many years, actually. No, no, you can definitely survive without meat. Yeah. And, and excessive consumption of meat is anyway not good or neither prophetic anyway. But how are you around big family feasts where maybe meat is being consumed? I, I'm used to it now. Like if, if you think about it, when I go to a lot of Asian functions or Pakistani weddings, there's meat everywhere. Um, and, and I'm just used to picking out the salad or mm. the, the dal and anything that's vegetarian, I'm on it. And was there ever a phase when you first became a vegetarian or pescatarian where you were kind of like, not disgusted, but a bit repulsed by meat? Did you ever go through that phase? Um, to be honest with you, as, as a child, and interestingly, my mum was vegetarian as well. So, which was very rare, actually, because I think she was probably the only Pakistani woman of her age group that I knew growing up who was vegetarian. And my mum, I think, turned vegetarian when she was about 21. Wow. So she was pretty much a lifelong vegetarian. What was her reasons for it? Um, she just, I think she was a real animal lover, actually, like me. Mm. So I think some of her reasons were probably ethical. Mm. And I think, like me as well, she didn't like the taste of it. 
So I think having a vegetarian mother, I mean, none of my other siblings, though, are vegetarian, only me. <laughs> yeah, so I'm actually the youngest of eight. Um, I, I was the only You're the one the youngest that, of eight? Yeah. Wow. I was the only one that followed my mum's footsteps of becoming a veggie. Everyone else eats meat. But we're not massive meat, meat eaters in the family either. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to present to you two things. Mm-hmm. You have to choose one, right? And if it's a difficult one, then you can't. You are allowed to elaborate on some of your choices. You ready? Yeah. Samosa or pakore? Samosa. Halwa or kheer? Kheer. Bollywood or Lollywood? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm actually gonna say. Um, mm. I'm going to say Bollywood because that was something that I was introduced to by my mother from the age of three. Okay. Yeah. Lollywood or Turkish industry? I'm going to go Lollywood. Okay. As characters mm-hmm. of the show that you're avidly watching at the moment, <laughs> whose character appeals to you more? Halima Sultan or Heymana? Oh, definitely the mum. Cricket or football? Football. If you had the opportunity to interview one of the two, would, who would it be? Muhammad Salah or Sadio Mane? Muhammad Salah. I feel a bit embarrassed to ask you this. And we actually spoke about it very briefly before we started filming. If you had to choose to live in one of the two areas, would it be Queen's Park or Berry Park? Oh, definitely Queen's Park. Why do you think people make that comparison? Have uh, you ever heard that comparison? To be honest with you, not really. But I mean, I can see why people... Make that comparison because they think, I think Bedford and Luton are the same place. Yeah. Well, actually, there's like 19 miles that divides us. Of course. Uh, we are not the same place. Yeah. We are different towns. Yeah. We just happen to fall under Bedfordshire. Yeah. Yeah. Urdu or Punjabi as a language? Punjabi. Okay. Now, I know you've visited India before, right? Yeah, t- twice. Have you visited Bangladesh? No. If you had the choice to visit one of the two countries again, I won't be offended. <laughs> would, you, would you choose to visit India or Bangladesh? Um, probably India again. I'm, only be- <laughs> I'm just being honest. <laughs> only because I've made some really good friends out there now, so, and I don't get to see them very often. So okay. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, India is so vast. It is. I mean, I've only seen a tiny amount of it, but it is something that you know. In the future, I'd like to go and explore more of. Same with Pakistan, and hopefully one day Bangladesh as well. Wicked. I'm going to tell you that new produce head of production that you just said that. <laughs> uh, TikTok or Insta? Insta. Books or TV? Books. Okay. Let's say it was TV. Netflix or Amazon Prime? Uh, Netflix. Um, if you recall the two newspapers of Bedford, do you remember what the two newspapers of Bedford were? Times and Citizen. And? Beds on Sunday. Did you ever read any of them? I used to read Beds on Sunday religiously. Yes. Yeah. That was basically where I was. Where you started, right? Yeah, where I started and got my training and everything. Okay. Stand-up comedy or radio hosting? Radio is my first love. And last but not least, if you could, if you think back at memories of childhood and growing up, do you you remember more fondly memories of Westfield Middle School or Bidnam Upper School? Westfield. Yeah. Yeah, I loved Westfield. I was there for four years, you know, because obviously we have a different tier system here. Yeah. You know, we used to have lower, middle, and upper until well, ve- I, until very recently. Yeah, that's right. Mm. I mean, I, I love I loved my time at Bidnam, but I think it's it's always more personal, isn't it? In, yeah. in, in when you're when you're younger and you know you you, you know you kind of know your class teachers a lot better, and there's less 
less pupils in the whole school. And it's, it's just a more of an intimate experience, I think. So I loved my time at Westfield. Wicked. So that was it. I hope none of them were too difficult for you to choose. Nah, that was fine. Wicked. Yeah. Right, now, let me, let, me, let me start with Bedford to the Beeb. Now, I know that's a huge journey and, and, and not one which we can necessarily cover in the space of 45 minutes or an hour. Mm. But how did you go from studying, what was it, sociology and English? Or what did you study in, in A-levels? Sociology so I actually did um, English, sociology, politics and business studies. Wicked. And from that point, where did it end up to the Beeb? What happened? What, what was happening between you with the Beeb and you leaving sixth form? A lot must have happened. A lot, a lot did happen, actually. And I think the reason why I did eventually gravitate towards radio was my love of music. Okay. Because when I, from the age of eight, I played quite a few instruments. Okay. So I started off with the violin. Okay. And then when I went to Westfield, I took up the oboe. Okay. And then I was in the steel band for five years so what carried on the steel band in Bidnam I played the violin did you but you know why I played the violin why just so I could take it home and do this <laughs> I think it treat it like a guitar yeah treat it like a guitar <laughs> but uh, do you remember you know back in the day you know steel band we was huge it was massive steel and, and was we huge. played at the river festival we yeah. went to BBC three counties that was the first time actually I'd ever been into a radio studio was through playing steel band and I used to play the tenor mm. um so, yeah, I had great memories, actually, of playing in the steel band. But it was my love of music that I think eventually took me to radio. But I did many things in between, like A-levels. Um, I didn't go uni. You didn't go uni? No, I didn't go uni. People find this quite surprising, actually. I, I never wanted to. I was quite keen to get into the world of work. And I'm a very hands-on person. And I don't know, the thought of, like, oh, gosh, four years of studying um, just didn't appeal to me even though I think my family expected me to go uni, my sister and my brother had been mm, and mm. all my friends were going. But I, I, I think I wanted this maybe slightly unconventional path of just working. I, I just wanted to get out into the world of work. I wanted to experience what it was like working. Was it work and this as well? Uh, uh, and money, obviously, yeah. I wanted to, I was very independent even from a young age. So mm. I thought, I, I don't want to ask mum and dad for money anymore. I want to earn my own money because mm. that way I can spend it exactly how I want to. <laughs> I don't have to justify where I'm spending the money. So um, yeah, then world of work happened and I went into a bank when I was 19. So that's two years I spent in a bank. Not to rob it. Uh, no, not to rob it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but it, it, I realised, you know, a lot of these jobs, I did them and I enjoyed them, but they weren't really me. Okay. I even worked at the Inland Revenue. I worked for the Benefits Agency. And then I went and worked in Luton as a learning mentor. Okay. At Icknield High School. So I was there for a few years. And whilst I was doing that, I was also dabbling in radio. Which radio? So I started off actually. So I decided I wanted to become a radio presenter. And this... All happened also whilst I had my own business. I don't know if you remember, I used to have a small boutique. You did indeed. I did, Nor here Norin's, in Queens. Norin's yeah, boutique. called Noreen's Boutique. Noreen's Boutique. And whilst I was in there, you know, it was just to sell like clothes and material and stuff. I used to have the radio on all the time and the radio just became my friend. Yeah. Because I, I spent a lot of time on my own in there. And then when I used to listen to the radio, I mean, I, I've been listening to the radio as a child. I always thought it was a really fun job to do. Okay. I thought, this this seems like a great job. They play records mm. and they talk and, you know, people call in and it just seems like a really fun job. Yeah. I'd quite like to do this. So I thought, I wonder how I do this, you know, because I didn't do any sort of degree in media studies or journalism. So I just went online and thought, okay, let me see what other presenters, what journeys they took. Mm. 
And I realised a lot of them had started off doing hospital radio. And I thought, what's hospital radio? So I contacted Bedford Hospital and I said, look, do you have a radio station within your hospital? And they went, yeah, we do. I said, can I come and volunteer? Because if you apply there, you know, you won't get paid. It's always voluntary yeah, work. Yeah. So what happens is when a lot of people don't realise, when patients have been in hospital for a while, especially the elderly patients... Somebody will go around and say, what song do you want to hear? And top, lot, lift, top lift the morale. That's and, right. So they yeah. have their own little radio stations yeah. within big hospitals that play music for the patients. So Bedford Southwing had one? Yeah. Wow. So yeah, no. I, went and, I went there for a few weeks and it was quite fascinating just going into a little studio and seeing all of these, like, literally they had vinyls all across the wall and loads of CDs. I only did that for a couple of months and then... Um, my sister knew that I wanted to get into radio. She said, hey, I've just heard an advert on Sunrise Radio. They're looking... Sunrise Radio. Yeah, so Sunrise Classic. Radio, as we know, is a you know, infamous, it, 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 you know, very old school radio station yeah. that's been going for years. Yeah. One of the pioneers, actually, yeah, of, course, absolutely. of Asian Radio over in Southall in London. She said they, they just put an advert out saying they're looking for um, young people to join a new station, that they're starting a digital station, because yeah. digital radio came about in 2002. Um but this was 2003 or, th- or four, And she said, why don't you apply? I said, oh, okay, then I'll, I'll ring them up and see what they say. Yeah. And then said, right, send us a demo and tell us why you want to work in radio. And I said, okay. Um, so I literally just recorded myself talking and sent it to them. And they called me in for, an, in for an interview. And then next thing I know, they said, okay, we're piloting quite a few of you. You can use our radio studios on the weekend. And then we're going to, from 36, we're going to chop it down to like 15 people. Okay. So I was like, okay. Um, and luckily I was one of the 15 that was chosen. They gave me this weekend show. And I, to be honest with you, I didn't really know what I was doing. But I had some <laughs> guidance from, you know, some of the experienced presenters um, from Sunrise. And they just kind of guided us and said, right, you know, do this, do that. And make it your own. And I just kind of made it my own. Noreen's boutique was done by then, right? Yeah, it was all done. Okay. I, I'd, that, I'd done that for three years. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I, I was just like flitting from one thing to the other. But I was still doing um, learning mentoring in, in, in Luton. Luton yeah that's and whilst I was doing radio and then I did that for literally six months and then another new station launched called Club Asia I don't remember that right so Club Asia was the first of its kind it was the first Asian radio station for young people that was going to play Asian and non-Asian music and it was all London based mm. and it was the first station marketed for young Asians because mm. what they realized was you know the younger generation had different listening habits to what their parents were listening to, who predominantly just wanted Bollywood or, you know, Lollywood or pure Asian music. But obviously, young people growing up were listening to R&B, hip-hop, pop, Mm. alternative Asian music. And this station was giving everything. It Mm. was giving all of that in one place. I applied there and I got a job. Um, and that's You're where just my landing these jobs are one after another, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm making it sound easy, but obviously you have to go in and you've got to go for an interview process. Um, you have to send in demos if they like it, they call you in. And then I landed a weekend show at Club Asia, and I ended up staying there for three and a bit years. And then I got headhunted by Asia Network. Smashed it. That's what? how that's how I went to BBC. Uh, uh, so, 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 so let me let me just super recap it, right? A levels didn't go uni. No. Independent, wanted to work, make the cheddar. <laughs> um, done a few little jobs here and there. Nori's Boutique, the mentoring in Luton, Hospital Radio, Sunrise Radio, Club Asia, and then the Beeb. Yeah. Was that accurate? Yeah, pretty pretty much, yeah. So that that's how what, I ended up at the BBC. What year did they headhunt you? I think it was 2007. 
2007. Wow, yeah. so you've been there for 13 years. Yeah, I've been there 13 years now. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, just, just staying on the topic of media, right? Um, obviously, when I opened this podcast, I said that we both are within the media industry, albeit different yeah. sectors and areas. Um, however, there is a huge discussion about Muslim representation in the media, mm. institutional racism in the mainstream media, media, institutional Islamophobia in the mainstream media, just the general depiction of Muslims and people of colour in mainstream media. And just to take perhaps the most two recent examples, um, there's the whole kind of migrant crisis that has re-emerged again. Mm. We've been seeing with COVID-19 for some reason or another, um, and by the way, I don't want to get you fired by the beep here, so by all means keep your statements generic, um, I'm going to be the, the naughty one here, right? But the mainstream media, for some reason or another, have been using Muslim-coloured imagery for COVID-19 stories when it's been Asian slash Muslims and people of colour who've been making some of the biggest sacrifices during the pandemic. So there's a huge discussion, and has been for some while now, about Muslim-Asian representation in the media. Now, because you have found yourself within a niche uh, area of media which is dedicated to Asian and people of colour, have you ever yourself experienced or sensed or observed any kind of, uh, what can I say, not, not necessarily racism, but any, any kind of like double standards or two-tier treatment? Have you ever experienced this whilst um, doing your media journey? From what, um, just generally? Just generally, from, yeah, just from generally. From like employers yeah. and, yeah. Um, to be honest with you, I mean, I can't really pinpoint and say, yeah, this has, you know, really happened to me because I think I've been quite fortunate in the sense that, you know, I've, I, and also, I'm, su I'm such a sort of focused person. I don't think I've ever even really thought about it and thought, oh, I didn't get that job maybe because they didn't like the colour of my skin. I don't think that was ever the case. Okay. Um, I've pretty much just gone for what I needed to go for and have done the things that I needed to do. Okay. Um, I can't particularly say anybody ever didn't give me work because of my ethnicity, my religion, my gender... So let's put let's put Nori let's put Nori out of the equation. What about have you observed have you yourself observed certain media representations of people of colour, of Pakistanis, of Muslims, which hasn't sat with you right, without necessarily naming any outlets? I mean, do do, do you think that Muslims are represented well in the mainstream media? I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I think there's a lack of us. Yeah. I think this is one of the big issues here. There is a lack of, I think, you know. Muslim people, whether it be in media, you know, or even in, in in some other industries. But I always think that's some of that is actually down to the fact that, I mean, you'll relate to this. Growing up, you know, I think in a lot of Muslim households, going into media is not something that's going to be encouraged. No, it's not lawyer, pharmacist, doctor, dentist. Absolutely. Did you face opposition or any kind of critique or anything when you got into this? No, you know, I mean, I'm very fortunate that my parents have always been, they were very liberated people mm. in the sense that they were, um, they were very proud of their roots. They were very religious as well, but they never kind of, you know, put any restrictions on us in the sense. And they always said, if that's what you're really passionate about and, you know, you'll work an honest an honest day's work and you know you genuinely want to do that because you love that field of work you want to get into go for it mm. and when I told my mum and dad that I want to do radio from kind of doing jobs like being in a bank and you know doing so I suppose admin type jobs yeah. um they didn't oppose it at all my mum was just like she knew I loved music because I used to play mm. in the steel band and I you know I loved music at school so she was like if that's what you want to do 
do it, you know. Um, just don't, she says, don't sort of maybe stress yourself out too much if it doesn't happen. Mm. I think that was a nice way of saying, if, you, if you're not successful, don't be too hard on yourself. So I was very lucky, I think, that I had very understanding parents and that encouraged me on the journey. At the same time, they didn't get too involved either. They were like, you do your thing. We know you'll be fine. Okay. But so, I mean, without, without forcing you into get, getting, a, getting any kind of positions out of you, but look, you're in the media. And whilst I appreciate you within a niche aspect of the media, which is the Asian Muslim kind of, I'm not Asian music kind of thing, right? Do you read the newspapers? Do you read news? I mean, I, to be honest with you, I consume my news from Twitter and I think mainly websites and social media. I don't actually sit and watch the news anymore. That's standard though. That, that's where 8% of people... I never sit and watch, yeah. I don't know, is it still the nine o'clock? <laughs> yeah, I don't even know because, I, I, you know, Twitter has just... News gets on there faster than any other place. Yeah, yeah. social media and you just see what's trending and you know exactly what's just happened. So I mean, that's where I get my news from. Do you see yourself staying within music in the foreseeable future? Um, I mean, primarily, yes. I'm a music DJ, and you know, I'm in broadcasting. But I don't know if that is something that I'll because I've done it for quite a long time now. Mm. um, But I don't know if that is something that I'll stay in for years and years to come. I mean, in future, actually. I mean. I don't I haven't sort of quite worked out where I'm going to be heading, but um, am I correct in understanding that you do want to start doing some stand-up comedy? I've already started it. How's it going? Um, I've been doing it for three and a half years. It's a, a very different form of expression for me yeah. because working on radio on the BBC, <laughs> you, you have to be very very mindful about what you say. Yeah. But I find through comedy. I mean, you still have certain limitations and I'm not the kind of comedian that's going to go out to offend people for the sake of offending them. That's not my style of comedy. Mine's just more observational and relatable stuff that I think people who my audience at the moment is primarily, you know, Asians that come out to see my comedy. Um, I think it's it's just given me a different kind of way of expressing myself. I mean, you might not know, but I've been doing um, tours they're called Ladies of Laughter. Okay. So I did the first one in 2017. How was that? And uh, that, it, it went fantastically because I realised there was a real gap in the market, actually. Mm. So w- what I did was I put together this whole brand of Ladies of Laughter. So I have all women of colour mm. on, not just women of colour, actually. So I have black, Arab, white, mixed race, you know, Indian, Pakistani, Bengali, you name it. All, but we're all women. So I have different women on every different show. Um, but, you know, the audience is not just women. Everyone's welcome, but generally it's women that come to see our shows. Okay. So um, I realised that this was something that was quite empowering, actually, especially for women of colour in comedy. Mm. Because, again, comedy is very saturated and dominated by men, especially tends to be white, white middle-class men. men. Yeah. I mean, a lot of brown comedians, black and Asian, are breaking through Breaking now. through, but even Again, it's more men. Than- yeah. So what I have found is... Uh, so, so does your comedy have any red lines? Yeah, I mean, you know, they do in some sense because I still, I always feel that I have still have some sense of responsibility mm. towards my followers, towards my audience. And whilst I'm obviously still working on the BBC, mm. I'm not going to be doing things that will bring it into disrepute because, you know, mm. that's something that I, I won't do. Yeah. You know, when you said uh, there just isn't enough Muslims or Asians, Muslims, let's specifically look at Muslims in the mainstream media, mm. right? And perhaps more representation would help perhaps um, the coverage 
of how Muslim related stories are yeah. reported upon, right? Um, how would you respond to uh, a kind of counterclaim that look, you know, we've tried, we've we've you know, it's not bore any fruit. Um, the political climate is just too strong for whatever mm. reasons, right? Um, and you're quite restricted in terms of trying to deliver grassroots news, right? For example, I mean, I mean, we can cite some examples. We've got Fatima Manjin Channel 4 doing a fantastic job. We have uh, Rage Omar. We have Faisal Ahmed in Sky News. We've got, we've got some prominent Muslim names, but they're, they're, they're far and few between, right? Mm. And... How would you respond to those who say that, look, you know, Noreen, we've tried um, and we just feel that our voice would be more amplified and honest if it was to be independent? Do you, do you think there's a space for independent media for Muslims? As, oppo as opposed to seeking careers in the mainstream as a way to perhaps change our perception and coverage? Uh, no, I, I think, you know, assimilation and actually, I, I don't think we should segregate ourselves. Mm. And I don't, I'm, I'm me personally... I think it is about assimilation and we need to try and work together. And if anyone says, oh, I mean, so when you're saying, oh, you know, we've tried, are you talking about mainstream media saying we've tried with Muslims? No, the other uh, way around. Oh, the other way Most, around. Muslims say that, look, we tried. Oh, okay, we, we right. Tried yeah, no, and, 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 I, and I think, yes, they, why can't we have both? Mm. Because, you know, already that there are, there are sort of, you know, independent i think tv channels and radio mm. stations and websites like yourself mm. uh, and podcasts that are representing muslims but i still think it's very important that we both. absolutely i think you know because this is where i think we start segregating ourselves mm. and not assimilating and going mm. right we're just going to do our own thing this is where misunderstandings and this is where you know moving forward we need to get on as a society mm. it can't be them and us of course absolutely yeah just before we move into our, our next topic for today's podcast right use the interesting word assimilate right uh, and and i and i uh, and i what i've experienced is the word assimilate and integrate is uh, it's conflated very commonly so in integration I mean, I mean correct me if i'm wrong Noreen, integration is something that we should be done i think muslims and asians have done it quite successfully to be honest if yeah. you look if you look at every sector and every industry generally speaking you'll find muslims asians people of color thriving in those industries um assimilation however right i'm not as I, I promise i'm not trying to educate you on okay. assimilation it has the connotation that you have to conform with compromise i think that's the issue yeah, um... I mean, integration, I'm all for integration. Yeah. And we should be integrating. That's, yeah. that's how any successful, thriving society would run, is integration. It's a give and take between various demographics and constituencies within a society. Yeah. Assimilation, however, it just it has that feeling that... But, it, I mean, uh, to, to, you see, to some extent, we all have to conform in some way or another. True. Like, I, being, you know, a broadcaster, I have to conform in some ways... Do you see what I mean? I mean, I can't go on radio and just say what I want. Of course, you have to conform to whatever the beeps. Uh, absolutely. Exactly, so yeah. you have to conform. You've got to stick to certain guidelines. Yeah. I mean, and that is a path that I choose to take. So I, it's not anything that I'm complaining about. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I'm coming from that kind of mindset that you have to conform in the sense like, I, I can't be of a certain mindset and then go, well, I, I, I don't agree with what my, you know, um, employer is saying because then that's just not going to gel. It's not going to work. Mm. Um, so in some ways I have to, some ways, in some ways, conform, I suppose, yeah. to what the guidelines are in order to do my job properly. Do would you would you ever do you ever think that there could be for some, not for yourself, um, 
Well, maybe, but that's conformity also has red lines. That there, 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 there is, there may come a time where you think. To, I'm not talking about Laureen here. I'm talking <laughs> about generally speaking, those that may think, okay, fine, I'm happy to conform. I'm happy. I'm happy to com- uh, you know conform to Ofcom's regulation, the the beads or skies or someone's editorial guidelines, yeah. the general take on how they perceive things. But there could come a time where that level of conformity doesn't sit well. And and therefore they may pursue a different career, a different path, which is more independent. I mean, that's happened with people before, you know. I mean, sometimes, I mean, there was just just recently, actually, um, I know he's not Muslim, but a sideman who left to be uh, one extra. Yeah. He's a black presenter and he left because the N-word was went out on a news bulletin that was shown on telly. Wow. Um, by the BBC. Mm. And this is all, this was everywhere at the moment. And How long ago was this? I missed this. How this long was... Two, three weeks. Well, I think the N word went out on a news piece about, I think maybe about a month, just under a month ago. Okay. And then, um, yeah, um, one extra presenter who was called Sideman. Okay. He it didn't sit right with him, so he decided to leave. Wow. Interesting. I mean, I know that's not you know, not but it's, it's it's just an example of sometimes if somebody doesn't feel comfortable mm. with what's being aired happening that's yeah. right um you know some people do feel strongly about certain things and will fair enough yeah bringing the podcast to a a, a, a close um you're a big fan of Dirilish Ertuğrul right yes what season are you in I've nearly finished season two shall I tell you who dies no please I don't want to know I, I, I don't want any spoilers you see I love tweeting about it but what I hate is when sometimes people start tweeting me spoilers and go oh he dies in season three he dies in th-. and I'm like I don't want to know <laughs> I don't want to know because a lot of my friends are watching it now and they're still on season one and I would never say to them okay. oh gosh this happens because come on nobody likes spoilers <laughs> okay how are you finding the show I'm loving it how did it come to your attention it came to my attention through one of my colleagues, actually, at the BBC, who was watching it about three, four years ago, mm. soon after it had had, had aired in, in Turkey. And he kept saying to me, Noreen, you really need to watch this. And, and it was literally on my list of things to watch. But as you can imagine, through the research that I do for my radio show, and just generally, I'm interested in lots of different, mm. you know, genres of TV and film and... Um, I thought, okay, Turkish TV is something that I need to explore at some point. And I've heard lots about Ertugrul and mm. I'm going to watch it at some point. Um, and then I think lockdown happened yeah, yeah. with a lot of us. And then we... Prime all, time to make yeah, up. So yeah, so I, I used to go out and do loads and loads of hosting and comedy shows. All of that stopped. Stopped since March. Then I realised I've actually got time on my hands now. I'm only just doing my radio show. I thought, I'm going to start it. Yeah. So I started, started it around two, three months ago. And hooked. What was your biggest binge period? It's still, it's still going on. It, I mean, <laughs> how many it's, it's, <laughs> how many episodes have you watched in one sitting? Uh, about seven. Smashed it. Yeah, wow. and I obviously then you know did Engin's interview. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was probably the first UK interview I think that, that, was, that he might that have done. You, you you were the first uh, British broadcaster to have to speak to Engin Alton Dosiatan. Engin Alton, I'm so excited to be finally having this chat with you. Um, many of my listeners are huge fans of this historical Turkish series Erdogrul. So welcome to the BBC Asian Network. How are you? Hello. Uh, I am very well, thank you, Noreen. I hope you are good too. 
I'm very well, thank you. Now we know this show has become a massive hit globally, especially since it's been shown on Netflix. So when you were filming, did you ever think that it would kind of get the attention and the love and the praise that it's currently receiving? When we were filming, uh, we knew from the beginning it was going to be a memorial series. However, uh, this much attention, even I didn't imagine. Uh, we are grateful. I know so many people now, after watching the series, who've never been to Turkey before, but are really intrigued and want to now go and visit the country. So this series has certainly boosted tourism for Turkey. Yeah, we know for a fact uh, Turkish popularity increased after the TV series. Uh, so which is great news. Uh, we are really glad. So the series has recently been dubbed in Urdu, it's being shown in Pakistan, it's breaking records there. What do you think makes this series connect with the Pakistani audience so much? I think both Turkish people and Pakistani people love well-crafted stories. Uh, Turkish series are successful at conveying touchy sense of drama to the audience. Playing the lead role of Ertugul Ghazi, what qualities in him do you admire the most? I love Ertuğrul Gazi's vision, strength, purpose in life, and all of his values. He's an admirable person. I'm really happy that I could portray his life. And finally, what would you like to say to all of your fans here? Hello, England. Uh, I hope you liked Rilish Ertuğrul. Please keep watching. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. and I think I'm out of, yeah, I think it probably was. And obviously that video has gone viral. And I think the reason why it's gone viral so quickly is because it's, it it's in airing Pakistan, in Pakistan. Pakistan. And it's it, being dubbed in Urdu yeah. and they're watching it there. And, it, you know, I think it's being aired in 37 countries now. 37 countries, Middle East, Africa, Bangladesh. Phenomenal, isn't it? It's just phenomenal. Yeah. And it's, yeah. just, it, it's just so... I think it's just so refreshing to see a show which shows Muslims in a really positive light. They are the protagonists, mm. you know, and I think the show is quite informative as well because a lot of my non-Muslim friends, mm. since I've been talking about it, mm. are watching it. And I think it's quite insightful for them as well to learn about... Absolutely. Of ...not just the journey of, you know... Concepts of Turkish of justice. And, and of, about Islam as well. Sharia. Absolutely. Because these are things like... I mean, if, 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 you, if you were to just take sensationalist headlines as your main as your main source of information for Islam you'd think that things like sharia and justice and jihad and these things are like you know really medieval scary but i think the show does a fantastic job in yeah and and the truth of the matter is putting the the drama the dramatization aside you know that i think that's a quite an accurate representation of how the early kayi tribe and many other Turkic tribes historically operated. Um, yeah. And um, why do you think it blew up so much in Pakistan? Like literally smashed records. Uh, well, I actually asked this interview, a question to Engin as well. And he says, he says, because like the Turkish audience, he said, the Pakistani audience like well-crafted stories. Okay. I mean, I don't know if you know, you know, if you, I mean, I'm not comparing it to Pakistani dramas, but Pakistani dramas are hugely successful because they're really well written. Mm. Um, they do like, you know, well-crafted stories and um, they are quite successful. They're now even, they're on Netflix now. Mm there's a massive audience for them globally. Mm. So it's not just people in Pakistan that watch mm. Pakistani dramas. Mm. I mean, because I talk about them on my show. And then I have people from Malaysia, Australia, Canada, you name it, all over the world yeah. that email me saying, oh, I've started watching Pakistani dramas and they're amazing. They're really good. So 
there's obviously, you know, there's a massive appetite, I think, for something like um, Ertugul, just not just in Pakistan, but all over the world, because it is so refreshing and it's just something very different for us. Would you say, would you say that because for at least the best part of 20 years, whenever you see Hollywood movies, even Bollywood, sadly. Yeah, the right? depiction of Muslims is always generally criminal, negative. Criminal, villains, Absolutely. terrorists. Absolutely. You know, n- nothing really positive. No. And, it, and if it's not villain or, cr- or criminal, then it's oppressed, need rescuing and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you think that plays, plays a huge role in the success of Dilish Ertrul? Definitely. I, I, I think it really does because, again, this show is you know, about Muslims and it's showing them in the, you know, these, in a, in a really positive light. Mm. And it's something that we're not really accustomed to. Did you find, did you find certain parts of the show informative for yourself? I, I know many Muslims, born Muslims who watched the show were, yeah. were like, wow, I, I didn't know that's how certain aspects of Sharia is implemented. Yeah. Or I didn't know that's how some of the laws and guidelines of military engagement worked. And, I mean, I'm only t- I'm only two seasons in at the moment, but mm. I mean, I'm I'm finding it very. Uh, it's just fascinating learning about Turkish history actually, because mm. I didn't know. I mean, we all know bits about the Ottoman Empire, mm, yeah, yeah. but I didn't know. But obviously, this this takes on a journey of how it came about, yes. and um, and so that's fascinating for me. You know, there's lots of other shows like that. So you got Kurulus Osman, which follows on, doesn't which it? Which follows on. Yeah. So that's the story of Ertuğrul's son, son who found the state. There's another one called Peytat Abdul Hamid. Which is more towards the first world, just before first world war. There's loads of touches, so I really recommend you to watch some of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, this is my entry now mm. into um, Turkish TV. And... Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm going to ask you a, a final question. Right? Okay. And I think every Muslim who's in the public sphere, irrespective of what their respective industry is, they will always get DMs and messages. From fellow Muslims, either praising them <laughs> or criticizing them, yeah. right? Uh, telling them the what haram police is out regularly. Police, yeah, do you get that? Yeah, of course. And of uh, course. And um, luckily, I mean, I don't get it as much as I I hear other people talk about it. Yeah. Um, generally, I think I've been very fortunate that a lot of my followers have been pretty cool with me. Okay. But I do obviously get um, I get a lot of questions actually more about my personal life. Why aren't you married? Oh, good. Yeah, you know, how come you're still not married? Um, you know, why do you promote Indian music? Why do you promote Bollywood films? Uh, occasionally, I get a little bit of that, but me personally, I think I get more questions, and yeah. How do you deal with it? You... I, I'm, I'm very. You become very thick-skinned when you've been working in okay. media for a long. And luckily, I mean, I'm not phased by any of it. To be honest with you, and we have block buttons, which are brilliant. Wicked. And have you have you ever had anyone from the Haram police who have conveyed their grievances or concerns in a sisterly or brotherly way, in, in a polite way? Or is it always... Well, like I said, I mean, it's generally... I don't get, like, lectures or... It's generally just... A main, oh, another thing I must say, it's, it's men. Okay. I have never... I can't think of a time ever where a woman has messaged me trying to tell me that I'm not living in you know what they perceive as the correct mm. way okay. of living it's generally comes from men and always comes from men okay who i think feel some kind of entitlement that they need to tell a sister even though some of them don't call me sister or just call you know tell a what another fellow muslim yeah. a woman okay. that she's not living in the way that they perceive to be mm. correct uh, so there is a lot of entitlement amongst men mm. i find towards 
women like myself. Okay. Lauren, thank you for your time. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I did. It was interesting. Uh, But we're not done yet. So basically, with all our guests, uh, we tend to present challenges to the guests. Um, Obviously, when we have females, um, you know, we have to tailor the the challenges a bit more uh, uniquely because obviously the the, the gender differences. And then the reason why is so usually we offer our guests an arm wrestle. Oh, okay. um, Or a thumb war. Or, Mohsin, you want to do the honours? Oh, oh, not chilies. No, not chilies. Hold on. Oh, I can see chilies. Hold on. Okay, fine. There's, there's a choice here, Noreen. Okay, 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 okay. okay. So obviously, Blood Brothers podcast with me and Aki, my brother, who's not here. We are being released. Barn. Is this barn? Yes. So, so, so you have a choice here. You have a choice. We got naga. You heard of naga before? No. So we have... Try a bit of nugger sauce. It is spicy. Okay. Very tasty. Or you have to try some fun. I'll try the bun. Do you trust me to make a few? I make it small and sweet. Yes. Yeah, so is it quite? Is it beetle juice? Beetle leaf. Beetle, beetle nut. Okay. Don't you be fine. Okay. I'll I'll try a bit. So you're chickening out of that, yeah? Yeah. I'm not. I'm. I'm not. Like, I love spices and love chili, but too much burns the mouth. Okay. So you got Barney there. Mostly you can get tissue from Noreen just in case. <laughs> just in case I throw up. <laughs> Thank All you, right. thank you. I'll make it sweet for you. It's just something that we do for our guests. Okay, right. so this is... We're, we're, we're a traditional barn that you Yeah, it's, it's a traditional barn. But the thing is, Pakistanis do have it, but I find Lori's have it a lot more. Okay. It's not necessarily... Where are you from, Pakistan, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, we're from the Punjab as well. Yeah, yeah, so, so Lori's tend to have it a lot more, whereas I don't think it's something that's common amongst Kashmiris, and obviously being from... It's predominantly Kashmiris here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and they tend to have mitta pan a lot, right? Uh, whereas, Bengalis have a far more uh, variation, which is tobacco-based. And, no, you look scared. <laughs> no, I'm not scared, I'm just wondering what that is. Don't you? What is that? What is that? So, so, this is a leaf. Yeah. This is a type of nut. Oh, okay. And this is called jaman bahar. It's really sweet. It's rose petal. Oh. I'm going to make it sweet for you. You don't have to pretend that you like it. And, and, and I mean, and I'm a real novice. I mean, I've never tried, really tried pan. So, so, so I just... Eat okay. the whole thing. Okay, hold on, hold on. No. So you, you, put, you put it in your mouth. <laughs> on the side. On the side. And yeah. You just chew it. Oh, okay. And if it gets too much for you, there's tissue, there's the water. Mm. What do you think? Very sweet. Yeah? Mm. There should be a bit of bitterness kicking in very soon, no? It's nice, actually. Really? Mm. Is it like, does it sort of freshen your breath as well? Because it, fresh, yeah, this, it feels like... This does. Mm. But obviously there's other variations. So mm-hmm. there's a tobacco variation, there's a there's a, a white jana variation and they can get you a bit mush up. But obviously I was never going to give that to you. I don't think our viewers and listeners would be too happy if I gave you the stronger brand of bun. Well, probably, yeah, get knocked out. Yeah, get knocked out. I mean, do people tend to put tobacco in it as well sometimes? They do, they do. So, 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 mm. so, so big, it's very popular amongst Bengalis mm-hmm. uh, that they, they'd put like dry tobacco in and that does give you a bit of a head rush. Uh, Pakistani, they do, have you heard of Naswar? Yeah. Yeah, so, so it, it's a similar kind of thing. Of it's been inside of the mouth, yeah. Mm. So, so, so it's, a, it's, it's a similar kind of thing. What do you think? Yeah, it's nice. You ready to spit it out? I think so, yeah. Right. <laughs> 
So whilst Noreen is getting rid of the barn, uh, I'll bring today's podcast to a close. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you all enjoyed a bit of a refreshing and different guest on today's podcast. Like the video, subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. If you want to listen to this podcast on the audio channel, search The Mad Mumlooks. Like the video, share the video, leave a comment, subscribe. And until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Like Burma's podcast. Five Pillars of Mad Mamluk's production.